The Guardian. Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis. And I'm Kieran Yates. This week, Stornaway's Brian Briggs joins us in the studio. John Grant, DJ Richard and Fainting by Numbers parade themselves in singles club. And Suede come in to tell us how a one-off reunion gig turned into a full-blown reformation. All here on Music Weekly from The Guardian. I'm delighted to say uh, that Brian Briggs of Stornoway is our guest in the studio this week. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. How about you? I'm I'm all right. I'm all right. Never better. The last time that I saw Mr. Brian Briggs was on Jules Holland performing live alongside Jay-Z. Well, not not alongside Jay-Z, but while (laughs) Jay-Z was also on the same show. Was this when you did Fuel Up? On, or have we you been did, on no, we've been, it was fuel up and absorbing we did, yeah. Wow. Did you get any reaction from Jay-Z? Did he look like he was enjoying it? He was nodding gently, yeah. 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 That's good. We had, um, we had Dave Grohl, well, it was Foo Fighters, Sting, Nora Jones and Jay-Z. So it was, and we were unsigned. It was very early <laughs> days for us and, uh, yeah, still the scariest day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, join in the jam at the beginning? I tried to, yeah. I'm actually crap at jamming, but um, <laughs> my bandmate John got in with a bit of boogie woogie, yeah. Did he? Yeah. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Um, you have a second album out on Monday, mm. uh, Tales from Terra Firma. Did you suffer from second album syndrome? Your first album, as you say, I mean, you got a lot of acclaim and a lot of notice quite quickly, it seemed, Storm Away. And uh, first album was very widely critically acclaimed. Was it difficult going back into the studio? No, it wasn't, actually, because um, I think... While we uh, while we were working so hard on that first album, it was quite a long process from when when we actually finished the recording. Like some of the recordings are like five or six years previous to the actual album. Is that right? It's, yeah, it's spread so out. I, didn't, I had no it, idea. It was kind of a collection of our uh, uh, early EP songs and um, and a couple of new ones and um, and so you know the album was finished quite a long time before it actually came out and and so we had this long period. <laughs> Before and after the album was out, that I was gathering lots of ideas for for a new album, and, and uh, lots was happening to me and my bandmates. We had uh, we had between us, we had some births and deaths and engagements and marriages and wow. all sorts of things happening. So quite inspiring things, and uh, and so it when time finally opened up, I had a, I got a camper van up the back of my house in in Oxford, and I just went went and sort of hid away there and, and the songs really flowed it was quite it was quite um, quite quick really the writing but you're the only open book a portal to a star crossed sea you hung an albatross around my neck when you needed to knock me on the head and say no 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 I've seen the ghost of my anathema upon my The, the sort of arranging and recording is something that we all really enjoy and uh, take a lot of time over and we just sort of like to try lots of different instruments and things like that so that's what's take that's what's taking the time really is it more would you say of a sort of conceptually unified record then because it sounds like your first album is kind of a compilation i know you wouldn't mm. you couldn't really tell that from mm. listening to it uh, is this more of a sort of yeah by virtue thing? of the just by virtue of the time you know the time <coughs> frame that it was recorded and, and written in but in in reality you know that there was a whole bunch of other songs 
that we recorded, some of which cover things like mass extinction and mullets. Um, <laughs> mullets the fish which, or mullets the hair? The, the hair. Wow, okay. Which, which didn't make it onto the album. <laughs> <laughs> and it ended up sounding, you know, when we sort of looked at the, the final sort of 20-odd songs that we'd, that we'd recorded, the ones that fitted best together happened to also seem like a collection of stories of life as a human being hence the sort of tales from terra firma is it a more grown-up record i mean the the first album had songs in it about sort of heading off to university and i mean it was quite a youthful youthfully oriented record although it had songs on it like fueled up which is struck me as you know a song written by a a very old head on young shoulders (laughs) um so is this more sort of is this more of a uh, you know grown up a little bit yeah it's sort of it's definitely feels a bit like a, a bit of a kind of coming of age record and sort of a bit more you know, grown up themes, I guess. But um, yeah, I think yeah, Fuel Up was I think probably the last song that I wrote actually for the for the previous album. And then there was one that we wrote, well, that I wrote called November Song, which was just in time for the first album, but just didn't feel quite right lyrically for that one. And, and that's ended up on this album. As I was following the road back to our house. Deeper than blue was the dusk through the trees With the last of the leaves clinging on like my mother's hands Cold as the sandpaper wind on my cheeks Over the river and under the railway And so, yeah, we, we've kind of, it's been pretty a constant process for us, the whole sort of writing, arranging, recording. It's sort of, we do it ourselves. We don't really go into a studio. We kind of just do it in the garage. And uh, Do you? Yeah, and then occasionally we, we take the, we'll take our, our recording thing to um, to a church or to a, a windy barn or a community centre. This obviously is important to you, uh, that you record in kind of out-of-the-way places. Well, I think we just... Because the way that we um, arrange the songs, we don't really settle on the instruments and the arrangements until we've had a chance to try recording bits and bobs and putting layers down. Because obviously when there's just the four of us in the garage, we can only try four things together. And so things like string sections and brass, you know, we we just work them out as as we record. And so the, it, the arranging and writing and recording all kind of blur into each other okay. really and when we go into a studio we just sort of find that it's a bit we feel a bit too much pressure like we don't get the chance to try as much out we're, we're basically really fussy picky kind of bastards and um, <laughs> and working with a producer doesn't tend to work because we we always have this kind of clear vision of what we want and then having someone else pushing it a different way just doesn't seem to work for us
When you were recording in churches and windy barns, do you find yourself hauling your equipment in as British Sea Power are hauling their equipment out? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, there's, a, there's no cross-contamination. There is a spiritual, there must be some sort of spiritual kinship. I mean, you don't sound anything like British Sea Power as a band, but there seems to be some sort of yeah, seem to work. spiritual connection between the Maybe, two bands. Yeah, definitely seem to work in the same way. It's quite fun doing, I think, part of it, the reason we do you know try things like that is it's really also enjoyable and and to go into a church and and sing it just kind of instantly sounds really nice yeah, and I it bet. makes you want to sing and it kind of helps you get into the into the feel of the of the song and then i mean it's quite interesting the church that we managed to get is right in the center of oxford and um, right. so we had to compete with the buskers outside and uh, oh you can hear all that yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then late at night we were there and uh, these kind of basically well, there's not that many gangs in Oxford, to be honest, but, you know, you get these kind of groups of, you know, uh, of you know, end-of-the-night mm. groups coming past and contributing their little bit to the recording. Wow. <laughs> um, is it a nightmare sort of sonically recording in a church? Isn't it all quite sort of boomy and echoey? Do you know, is you know, well, that, that's, that's the that? idea, really, because we only, we'd only do it on the songs that we really wanted to capture that kind of reverby sort of open sound. Yeah. And then we'd take a bit of time over where we put the microphones and stuff to try and... You know, avoid too much of the boominess, but then capture the the atmosphere as well. So, yeah, that's part of the the experimental process, really. You're heading off on tour again on Monday, but the first part of this tour, you were saying that you toured around um, sort of places that rock bands don't normally go to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we started in Hebden Bridge in in Yorkshire, and, and I mean, it was kind of reflected in our audiences as well. We kind of the next night was Pocklington, uh, which the locals called Pock, and it was just this. Uh, this theatre with um, just seats, so we're playing to a seated room, and uh, I think everyone in the room was over sixty on that on that really? night. Really? Yeah. And that must be bizarre. What's that like? Playing to an audience that they, they were completely silent. We sort of couldn't really tell if they were <coughs> if they were liking it or not. And actually, thinking of Pocklington, a weird thing happened after the um, the night after the gig because we we were staying in this hotel in the town called the Feathers Hotel, and um, I woke up at four a.m. when my bandmate. Tom rugby tackled me to the floor uh, at the foot of his bed and um, neither of us have ever sort of knowingly sleepwalked before but we were both kind of on our feet in his room and he kind of just screamed and charged at me Wow! and uh, his duvet was in the bathroom and we were so kind of freaked out by it that the next morning we asked the landlord if there was any kind of talk of ghosts in the hotel right, or anything. Okay. <laughs> and was there? And he, sa- he, looked at, he looked me in the eye and he said what do you want to know about Charlotte? <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, and uh, apparently the room, the room next to ours on the top floor, it was Charlotte's room, mm-hmm. and Charlotte is um, some poor girl who was murdered in the room because, um, like, some rich guy from the manor got got her pregnant and didn't want anyone to to find out, and so he. Um, Rugby tackled her to the floor. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where, where did you head off to after Pocklington? Then? So then, what did we do? We went to Glasgow. Um, yeah, that was yeah, that was a no- more normal one. We went to uh, Pontadawi in uh, in West Wales. Um, with the audiences, when you got to, the, uh, with the exception of Pocklington, where you appeared to have got the grey pound vote, whatever, yeah. with the audiences, that's a wildly enthusiastic you, because bands it, never normally come. Yeah, some of them were, yeah, really clearly very grateful for us kind of being there i mean some of them would even places like folkestone i think we we went to and they don't normally have touring bands coming through there yeah they were they were lapping it up and um such a mixture of audiences as well like uh, the last show we played on this first leg was uh, kingston in london 
And there I felt like the oldest person in the room, to be honest, it was quite strange, it was like a, a club night. Yeah, others like the town hall where we played in Oxford was just the whole range from, it was a, it was an all ages show, so we had, we had actual children in the audience looking down from the balcony. Wow. And, and their grandparents, you know, it's it the whole range and uh, that's quite nice, yeah, quite, quite, like, quite like that about our music seems to have a, seems to have a bit of a wide age appeal. You know? That's a lovely thing, no, it's, yeah, ab- it's absolutely nice. great, no, it's yeah. really, really good. Um, so, look, uh, we, we will talk to you later because you're going to be taking part in Singles Club Tales from Terra Firma uh, the second album last door which comes highly recommended by the Music Media Podcast it's out on Monday uh, the tour begins on Monday as well Okay, Singles Club is upon us. Guests first. We'll start the bidding at Brian's choice. I hope you get everything you wanted, boy. I hope you conquer the world and turn it into your toy. But don't come crying when you're forced to learn the truth. Green goes at the end of May. Soldiers of this black highway. Very nobly, uh, that's Brian Briggs from Stornoway's Show. Very nobly, uh, Brian Briggs nominating uh, the title track on an album released on the same day as his own. Um, that's uh, that's John Grant, uh, Pale Green Ghosts. Um, oh, that or Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you like about it, Brian? Why did you bring it in? I heard it on the radio on on Six Music, and uh, it, it's it just sort of jumped out as being so kind of so unique. It's it's quite an epic. It's about six minutes long. It transforms as you go through. It starts with this quite sparse, atmospheric kind of electro sound, and then as it goes through, you you heard on that little clip bits of this kind of James Bond style brass. Uh, I think it might be synth brass, but in a way, you get that, and then you get these sweeping string sounds come through. It's just got this amazing atmosphere to it, and it's kind of just feels a very imaginative um, arrangement. Uh, also, I mean, I'm just learning a little bit about him um, over the last few days, and uh, when you sort of know that he's got this quite tough, uh, tough a turbulent life, I think. Yeah, it kind of gives it even more power, really, because I think then you sort of the lyrics of "Pale Green Ghosts." It kind of it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but you know, as you um, as you listen through and you and you hear about him, that it's got. It's got real meaning, even if it's not obvious on first listen. You know, it's a much more oblique, I think, song lyrically than the rest of the album, which is um, unbelievably frank kind of confessional really? songwriting. I mean, it is, it is a. Ma- I mean, I, I love it. I really, really like this track. I really like the album that it's from. It is sort of remarkable because it shouldn't work, but it does. Because mm. literally, I think there's twelve tracks on it, and of those twelve tracks, ten of them 
are about this ex-boyfriend of his that, that, that dumped him. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the sort of musical of having to sit with your recently dumped mate while he goes <laughs> on and on and on and on about his ex. Which, you know, we, we've all done it, you know. Um, and, you know, it, it, there are possibly more rewarding ways to spend an evening than that. But it's a testament to this guy's remarkable songwriting. It's completely captivating. It's mm. really interesting. It's mm. beautifully expressed. The great line on one of the songs where he talks about Depression, he suffers from depression, and describes it as being what is it like being in a damp concrete room with fluorescent lighting and the like signs, which, as you know, makes everything look terrible. Oh, uh, yes, that's a good one. It's amazing. One. Kieran, did you uh, did you dig this? Yeah, well, it it sounds like very cathartic, doesn't it? it <laughs> for him, it's unsettling because it deals with dark themes. You know, it's mm. very very close to his own experience. I think that you have artists that want to detach themselves from their own stories. Um, and I think that he is not one of those. He's, uh, <laughs> I think he's safe to say that he's not one of those, yeah. Yeah, do you know what I mean? But I found it really difficult. But I found it really interesting, I guess, not difficult listening, because it is unsettling, but then it's sort of a club track as well. So even like just as we were listening to it now, you know, there is kind of like, it does make yeah, you want to move. Definitely, and there is yeah. like something about that that makes your body respond in kind of an upbeat way, despite... Yeah. The lyrical content. I agree. You know, it's not a difficult. It's not a difficult listen musically, is it? Mm-hmm. It's got a kind of. It's got a clear chorus as well, and um, also his his vocal is. I don't know. It's just actually a really nice voice to listen to as well. It's got a really kind of nice tone and richness to it as well. Mm-hmm. No, that's, I completely agree. That's what you need sometimes, though, don't you? Yeah. Otherwise, it's just like so bleak and it's thick and it's layered with all of that kind of melancholic sadness. But this is quite good. It feels like it's you know, refreshing or upbeat in some kind of way. You don't There's feel like you're There's an amazing disparity on the album between mm. the kind of, the the sort of loveliness of the of the music, which is incredibly, you know, incredibly melodic in quite a sort of lulling and warm kind of way. And these kind of lyrics of just this total wretchedness, you know. Mm. And also a lot of the songs, there's four or five tracks have Sinead O'Connor on them. Oh, well, um, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. this beautiful kind of honeyed, backing vocals except on one track called which is called you know to give you some hint of the tone of the album why don't you love me anymore just at the end she unleashes the kind of Sinead O'Connor you know blood curdling kind of ah, you know chorus of Mandinka sort of thing singing the, the, the title of that song over and over again it's it's great it's it's a brilliant brilliant how brilliant did you record. feel after listening the last track on it will fucking destroy you it's about awesome. seven and a half minutes long and it's basically him offering advice to any listening kids who are in the same teenagers in the same position that he was in i.e. growing up gay in a religious mm-hmm. household and it is um, but it's funny just heartbreaking it is it sounds awful because it's inspirational yeah. messages to you know but it's just amazing it's called glacier and it's it uh, you know I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna be about it reduced me to tears what do you do though when you listen to a track like that and you've just finished the album like what's what's your next step do you like turn it off take a moment to like take it in or are you like <laughs> are you sad what, what what's your process when it's something like that i can't remember what i did afterwards put something else on put something yeah. else on yeah. <laughs> quickly went downstairs and shouted at my kids yeah. <laughs> yeah. stop <laughs> it just go and hold your child yeah. <laughs> no, you can't shut up <laughs> um anyway yes yeah, so that's that's all by the way well look uh, john grant pale green ghosts the title track of the album uh, which is released on monday let's move on to kieran's choice Brody. 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 
That is DJ Rashad and Rowling, uh, Kieran's choice. Kieran, um, tell us about this. What kind of music is this, Kieran? What what is it? This isn't dubstep. This is no, this trap. I mean, I mean, it's trap trappy. influence, but I think it's still quite footworky, quite quite jukey. Yeah, okay. You know, I think that he's like very much known. Um, I mean, he's Chicago based. He's very much news as a kind of arbiter of juke and footwork, really pushing that okay. sound through. Yes. Anyway, so DJ Rashad, that is basically his story. He is at the helm of the Chicago footwork scene, in my opinion. He does lots of stuff with DJ Spin, who does similar things. And when they play out in the UK, they usually do as part of a house night. Um, so kind of Chicago house, that kind of vibe. There is a lot ballroom. of links, I think, between um, footwork and Duke. And yes. that really kind of rough-ass Chicago house that yes. was coming out on sort of relief and casual records in the mid-90s, uh, you know. Yeah. People like Green Velvet and stuff like that. And, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I think there's a well, DJ Sneak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that this, yeah, is very much within that lineage. Yeah, totally, um, no, totally. It has all those kicks, it has the hi-hats, but what I really like about this is that it's got that R&B influence, but it's beautifully lo-fi. You know, it's it's really controlled. It feels like this is, you know, this is so well thought through. Um, it's not over-intellectualised. I think that the tension works in all the right places. And that's quite, I don't know, I think that not to be too techie, but that's difficult to do. And I think it just sounds very intelligent. Do you dance to this kind of music? Yeah, it's a... And I, don't, I, I, mean, I know people a, do, do footwork kind of dancing, wine. which I'm, I'm yeah, assuming no. you don't do. <laughs> well, no, I don't really do footwork. It'd because... be amazing to see you do it. <laughs> have you ever seen uh, videos of people doing footwork dancing, Brian? I uh, don't think so, no. Amazing. It's like they have battles. Yeah, and the top part of the body it's kind of scary because it's, it's, it looks kind of very menacing like they're going to have a fight okay. the bottom half is this unbelievably fast kind of business <laughs> yeah. going it is the most remarkable but, uh, but I thing. mean this kind of music has a great I don't know there's a great lineage of dancing I mean obviously with Vogue House in the you know early eighties. You know, proper. If you go back to kind of uh, early house clubs, there was yeah. kind of proper ways of dancing to house. There was a great clip, if you look on the internet, of uh, I don't know whether they're from Detroit. I think they're from Detroit or Chicago. It looks about nineteen eighty eight, and it's some dancers they've got out of clubs who are dancing to something by Kraftwerk. Right. And it's proper kind of guys with like hair like that, <laughs> yeah. you know. And everybody's really dressed up and wearing big. And it look, it's amazing, you know. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really cool. So there is proper, you know, jacking is a kind of dance. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. And you know, Vogue from Extravaganza which Madonna used and now it's very much oh nice Vogue Alexis and now um, you know people you do the house shuffle it's called shuffling boys just basically move their feet around and it looks a little bit like footwork but um, it's kind of an evolution of that but it's since been banned from clubs because it's too often. I've written a piece about this in The Guardian, if you want to, re- if you want to read it. Um, Why have they banned a certain kind of dancing? Uh, well, because it's, you know, it's kind of famed by black young youths in hoodies. And so there's this idea that if people are shuffling in the club, they're also troublemakers. That It's just, yeah, it's kind of lots of, to do with racial stereotyping. It's, not like, it's, not that, it's a that. big controversy in the house scene at the moment, guys. You need to, you need to get on the wow. forums. Yeah, that sounds extremely controversial. <laughs> so it's not for physical... Um, physical sort of safety reasons or anything. No, not that you're taking up too much <laughs> space. Um, anyway, so back to uh, Rashad. So last year he uh, released the Tech Life Volume 1 EP, which was very good and it, ha- and it was kind of a little bit more frantic, a little bit more 
urgent I don't think what you're talking about it, well Duke, Duke is sort of goes at about what 160 yeah, BPM normally yeah exactly yeah. whereas this is a lot more pared back this is you know is a little bit more jungly maybe even a little bit more solely with that female vocal that you can hear on this um, and this is part of the four track EB that Hyperdub are releasing uh, the four tracks which are Rolling Let It Go Drums Please and Broken Hearted and also features Manny and DJ Spin um, and you can hear all of those you can hear all those fragments of like Jungle a little bit of UKG a little bit of Soul which I think is why it sounds so relevant and you should definitely take a listen Brian well I won't lie I'm completely out of my, out of my depth here, but, uh, <laughs> uh, all I can say is that um, I first listened to it on my laptop and didn't really get anything out of it at all um, laptop speakers I should say yeah. and then I uh, when I came into the uh, into the office you know I put uh, put it through my, my proper headphones mm-hmm. and it sort of opened up this whole world with the with the amazing kind of use of panning and um, you really hear separation between the different different parts of the uh, of the mix and um, it was just a whole lot more enjoyable to listen to it's a funny thing um, listening to music on laptop speakers there is a theory that one of the reasons that that sort of you know, uh, Skrillex style of dubstep has taken off so much yeah. is because it actually sounds all right through right. laptop speakers, <laughs> yeah. which is the way that most people hear music. Yeah, we're just holding their phone. Yeah. yeah, you know, and yeah. and whereas if you put a track by Burial or something like that on it through a laptop, it doesn't really sound like you've got any music well, on yeah, at you all. You know, can't hear anything. Yeah. So it, it's quite intriguing that that you know that I can t- I totally agree this doesn't work and it is all about right. such an incredibly repetitious track. It's all about the subtleties of production that you're talking about mm. um, that make it work. I really liked it. I I couldn't listen to this all night. Right. I would like to hear this dropped in a set of other music. Fairly obviously, <laughs> um, but no. But, you know, I would like. I, I think a whole evening of this or of Duke or Footwork would would send me up the pole. Um, well, you're not popping mollies like everybody else is. Popping like, mollies. That's what he's saying. Pop a molly. Is that what he's saying? Yeah. Is that you referring to taking ecstasy? <laughs> yeah, MDMA. At the risk of sounding like Elton John when he turned around to Lily Allen at the GQ Awards and when I could still snort you under the table, don't talk to me, <laughs> young lady, about taking ecstasy. <laughs> so this is coming out on Hyperdub? Yes, this is the EP rolling and it's out next week on Hyperdub Records. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Excellent. Finally, we'll go to my choice. When I tell them that I'm doing fine Watching shadows on the wall don't you miss the big time boy, you're no longer on the ball That's uh, Fainting by Numbers, who feature among their lineup, uh, Alexis Taylor from Hot Chip. Uh, that's their cover, their debut single, which is a cover of John Lennon's Watching the Wheels. Two reasons why I like this. I, I, I have had... Uh, I was in New York a while back, a couple of weeks back, and I was in a bar on my own. I was a bit homesick. I sat there with a book. I was a bit pissed. And, and uh, oh God, I'm a long way from home. I'm on my own. It's boring. And the, uh, Nobody Told Me by John Lennon came on in this bar. And I was like... God, this song's amazing. It totally lifted my spirit. I thought, I should investigate late period, you know, but sort of around the time he got shot, John Lennon's music a bit more. And I dug out Double Fantasy, which I've had for ages. It's the last album that was released when he was alive. This is the opening track from it, Watching the Wheels. It's actually really good songs on, you know, what, there are really good songs on this album. This is one of them. I really like this version of that song, because Watching the Wheels, if anybody doesn't know, is the sort of song where... Lennon kind of explains his absence from making music for the preceding, 
whatever it was, four years, five years, where he just became a house husband. And it's quite a robust defence. He basically goes, you know, I don't fucking care what you think. This is what I wanted to do. And, da, 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 da. and I really like this version because it sort of undercuts that sentiment. There's a real fragility about the vocal. There's a real fragility about this sort of like a rinky-dink kind of keyboard thing that's going on on it. Um, that He sounds less... Makes the song sound less certain, less 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 sure of itself, mm. and I just I just sort of really liked it. I think uh, the, the amount of music that the members of Hot Chip appear to produce <laughs> between of a fairly unerringly high quality, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me. If it's not one of them, it's the other putting something out. Presses me. Does it? Why does it depress you? I don't really like Hot Chip. I don't really. Well, what do you like about I Hot Chip? I don't really get it. I feel like it, it. It sounds really try hard, like far too try hard. And when I went to go and see the live show with Tim Jones, who's a really big fan. I just, I felt like I was... And you ruined the evening for him. Yeah, I really did. I felt like it was really, like, Emperor's New Closey. Everyone was just, like, loving it, and I didn't get it, and I felt really outside of it. Wow, so was the, the, this, was not, this was not up your, up your street? No, I can't believe I'm going to say this, as I sound like an old man. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I much prefer the original. Like, okay. like, you've brought in a rework, and I'm... I prefer the original because I really love all of all of that that confident euphoria mm-hmm. from the original. I really like that about John Lennon. I think that it's something I don't know. He projects something that I guess we wish we all had. You know, we wish mm, we had contentment. Yes. Yeah, and that kind of confidence in in kind of choosing a lifestyle or just being a certain way that might be against the mainstream order. I think it probably helps you to gain that confidence if you could put your hand on your heart and honestly go, well. Like about ten years ago, I changed the face of Western culture. <laughs> yeah. Basically, me and my mates sort of did it just to get it. You know, um, I've been pretty busy throughout the sixties, generally speaking. You know, I think I'll just sit on my ass for a bit now. I think it would give it would give you that comment. But anyway, Brian, what did you make of this? I didn't know. That, I didn't know the hot chip connection there actually. But yeah, sounds... I don't think it's him singing on it because he's right. got quite a distinctive voice, and that yeah. seems to be not him. Yeah, and no, I guess you, you get it more from the uh, the music, the arrangement, but. Um, I actually found it a bit slightly amusing in a, in a kind of like I, I I was I was really entertained by it. You didn't re- didn't really get it on that that little clip, but um, at some point this banjo comes in out of nowhere, yeah. and then also there's this point somewhere in the middle of the song where where the vocalist just goes ah. Uh. Like that, like it's Jay Z or something, and uh, it just uh, kept me entertained all the way through. Um, I I know the song, but I I don't know the original well enough to sort of really make a. Uh, to you know, get into the comparison like you guys have, but um, the vocally it sort of was very reminiscent, very sort of Lennon-like, I thought, and uh, yeah, I just I, I enjoyed it. But I, I would be quite curious to hear what some of their original stuff is. There like. is a track on the other side of the, and I can't for the life of me remember what it's called. It's quite a long track on the way, so I thought it was very good as well, um, which is of, of their own. You know, they wrote themselves. Um, yeah, I also like the use of syndromes, which is not a sound that you hear very much mm. these days. You know, it's, it's sort of uh, a sound of my youth, and it's good to see somebody. You know, the eighties revival has not reclaimed the syndrome. You've never, had, you've not had a lot of people. Also, what's that uh, percussive instrument when it has a ball and you smack it and it goes? Ball. Yeah, it sounds like it has that that kind of vibra slap. Yeah. What a great name! Yeah, that's, mm. I really want one of those. Yeah. Sounds like there's something like that that's happening throughout this, isn't it? Every band practice, we talk about how we need to get a vibra slap, but <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like something you'd have to send off to a specialist website. For. <laughs> um, um, Fainting by Numbers, watching the wheels, is out. I believe uh, later this month. I haven't actually got a release date for it, and it's not. For once, it's not around on the internet. I tried to find it on YouTube, and uh, it was uh, it was it was nowhere to be found. The, the B side, the track of their own composition, is around on YouTube um, it's coming out on uh, on the Moshi Moshi label and that's Singles Club 
In 2003, Suede split up with Brett Anderson telling the audience at their final show, I just want you to know there will be another Suede album, but not yet. He was right. They did a comeback show at the Royal Albert Hall a couple of years ago. They thought that would be it, but then they couldn't leave it alone. Apparently they realised on stage, we've got to do this again. We've been so invisible for eight years. They're back, back, back. They have a new album out called Bloodsport, um, and they came in to talk about it. First, I suppose, most obvious question to ask you is, I saw your first comeback show at the Royal Albert Hall, and you said at the end of that, Brett, very, you know, let's do this again in another yeah. 10 years or 11 yeah. years, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, here you are. You continued, and you've made an album. What, what changed? Well, when we did the, that Royal Albert Hall show, we, we kind of, um, we did do it with, with very pure intentions. We kind of intended just to do one show, and then to not do any more, and it was we thought it was a very kind of beautiful, elegant way to kind of do a comeback thing, but mm. without doing the comeback thing mm-hmm. sort of thing. We thought it's for charity, and it's like, uh, and we just couldn't, we couldn't leave it alone. It was too, we enjoyed it too much. Mm-hmm. To be p- perfectly frank with you, we d- I don't think we thought we were going to enjoy it that much, did we? Well, it really? wasn't a complicated thing. I think yeah. about halfway through, a kind of look went through everyone in the band, which was kind of like. Well, we've got to do this again. Well, actually, on stage there was kind but of yeah. A moment, I mean, it's it, it's it seems strange now because because it went so well, but we had no idea how it was going to go. Mm. I mean, literally, I can remember kind of like worrying that no one was going to turn up because mm-hmm. you just don't know. We'd been so invisible for eight years, but mm-hmm. probably for longer actually, that that you don't know whether people are remembering you with affection or whether mm-hmm. you've just disappeared. Was that a surprising thing? Because Suede, when when Suede broke up there was a sense that this was a band that you'd done your thing, you know what I mean? You'd said what mm. you had to say. And th- um, were you surprised at the sort of intensity of feeling that, that, that reforming? I think we were worried about it because, like you say, when we split up, we split up, we split up in a kind of downturn, mm. you know, and the last Suede album was a poor album and we shouldn't have made it. And it definitely kind of get, gave us the, the sort of sense that, okay, well, we don't really want to hear another anything else by them if it's going to be like that. <laughs> so, but I think there was a, real lot of love for the band you know for for our first three albums especially mm. and i think that you know historically where we came and and all of that you know the kind of like the, the sort of relevance of the band and ha- what kind of happened after the band and the whole Britpop thing and stuff like that it kind of like it, that's the sort of band's legacy really mm. and it's sort of like i think a lot of people have a lot of, lot of love for the band for that mm. i think there was a sense also when you came back of people almost reimagining the 90s in a way yeah. saying, well, had it con- had you know Britpop, if you want to call it, continued the way it started, and had say swayed the auteurs and denim been the, the, <laughs> the, the, the sort of the the three pro- you know as there wasn't that first Britpop feature, they were the 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 bands that wouldn't it? It would have been a lot more interesting, a lot weirder. Yeah. The nineties would have been a lot weirder, much stranger, much stranger. You know, if Lawrence was one of the imagine main, that, major the, figures, the, of, the of, chief of, architect of nineties rock, would have been fantastic. And I think there was just something that was like, well, actually, something was lost. Not, I think it's interesting what happened with it because you know when we made the first Suede album, you know, I was kind of. Lots of the things we were talking about, which were, you know, sort of isolation and poverty and th- these kind of things. But, but it was about realism mm. and, and 
my view on realism was uh, kind of framed within the, f the framework of being English. And then that was kind of like t sort of misinterpreted. I don't know, misinterpreted. I don't think people were specifically looking at us and thought, right, we're going to rip this off and get it wrong. <laughs> but it was, a very, it was a strong kind of idea, I mm. suppose. And it was a strong enough idea to, to sort of like fuel a whole movement. And people sort of like distorted what we were doing and made it much more sort of jingoistic and mm. much more kind of laddish and mm. much more sort of... Um, beery, I think, and cartoon-like, and kind I think the, 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 yeah. the initial vision was quite was quite sort of um, quite arty and quite kind of uh, and, and, and quite sort of like dislocated. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That was something that was completely lost. There's a big difference between uh, reforming and playing the hits and actually taking the plunge into making an album. Mm. Was that a tough Huge. decision to make? Yeah, yeah. We had to do it, though. I think, I think we couldn't have justified carrying on playing live. I, mm. I didn't want to become one of these bands that just sort of like, you know, parades in front of the public with, with songs from 20 years ago. Mm. It, it, I think I find that's a bit, a bit sad after a while. I think you can do, you know, a couple of tours like that, and then mm -hmm. after a while, you know, wh wh where are we going now? Yeah. And kind of like, you know, in our heyday, we were very forward-looking. You know, we'd always sort of like rip it up, start again. Okay, you know, Bernard left the band. Okay, let's get someone else in. Let's make a new album. Mm -hmm. And for a while, we made, you know, we made, made coming up, and we didn't play any of the old songs. And it was always about, you know, we. It was like whatever, you know, we're only as good as our last song, sort sure. of thing. Sure. And I think we kind of wanted that back a bit, and we thought, well, we we have to we have to make a new record if we want to carry on playing, to mm -hmm. play, being together. Otherwise, let's not do it. Sure. I think there's part of it for me that, and it was also the reason for doing the gig was. I didn't want our last show before we reformed to be our last show, and I didn't want a new morning to be our last record. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. kind of it, it just it's unsatisfying to me. The band is quite extreme in terms of ups and downs, and I don't know. I just always felt like we went out on such a like Brett was saying a trough, mm -hmm. and it's it's unsatisfying to me. You said before Brett and we were talking downstairs. You said it was difficult making the album. You said it was mm. a hard, hard thing to do. Why? Why did you find it hard? Why did you both? If you both found it hard, why did you? Both uh, it, it was the hardest album I've ever made personally. Um, that's I, think an I mean, that's an intriguing thing to say because mm. you know, Suede notoriously made mm. albums under some fairly tor torrid <laughs> circumstances. Hard in a um, different way. It wasn't. It wasn't sort it of wasn't hard. Personally hard. No, it? it wasn't. Kind of there wasn't friction. Mm -hmm. It was. It was sort of a battle against oneself. I think that was. That was the. That was the main kind of like battle. What do you mean battle against oneself? Like your expectations? <sighs> yeah, I think it's it's a real balancing act doing coming back and making a record ten years after you split up because mm -hmm. you've got to you, for a start you can't come back and reinvent yourself. That would be crazy. Mm -hmm. you know, there's no point in sort of like trying to evolve. What you know you've got to come back. And you've got to make a record that's sort of kind of defines you <laughs> and 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 very much you know part of your DNA, but at the same time feels fresh. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, we were obviously sort of like thinking, you know, we kind of, we, we're competing with all these songs from the past that we've written, but we can't just sound like that. Mm. We can't just sort of rip off Coming Up and Dogman Star and, 
you know, there's got to be a kind of a contemporary currency it has as well, without sounding like we're sort of trying to, you mm-hmm. know, dad dancing at the disco, so yeah, trying you, to ape new bands, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's you can't like, have dubstep. So I mean, it's, it's a cool. real, a real, you know, it's, there's, there's a sweet spot in the middle between these two two extremes that mm-hmm. we were trying to find with the songs. Mm-hmm. And not, obviously, you know, we wrote lots of songs for the album and not all of them found that sweet spot right at the right point. And we were quite brutal about it. No, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. Ah, that one's right. Mm-hmm. So it's like that. So it's a, re- it's, a, it's a really tricky thing to do. Most bands have this kind of, you know, that kind of imperial phase where everything they touch turns to gold. Yeah. But to do that, you have to be in that situation that you've been making records for 10 years, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And you just hit that kind of, we can do no wrong. Do you? I mean, didn't you feel like that at the start of Swade's Group? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah. Rem- you've got to remember that, that we wrote 50, 60 awful songs before right. people really heard Swag. Sure, and sure, every, sure. Every band does. You yeah, know? And course, this was yeah. kind of like starting again, and we had to have that sense of, you know, that kind of... I think lots of bands kind of get together and they make records again, and it like they just sort of... I think they just assume that the magic's there, and mm. they assume because it's them, it's like, yeah, well, that's good enough because it's us sort of thing. Because yeah, it's four people in a room, and yeah. that's how five yeah, people in a room work. There's a little bit of ego there, and I didn't want that in there at all. I didn't mm-hmm. want to think just because it's Swag playing again together again that it's automatically going to be good. As a songwriter, is there something, you know... Different about the music you were, the songs you write for Suede. I mean, is there a, you know, do you write about different things? Do you alight on different topics when it's a Suede song? Is there a kind of Suede mindset that you get yourself into? I think there probably is, yeah. But it's more to do with how I respond to the music that Suede make. Because mm. it's not like I sort of like just sit there at the piano and write songs and, uh, and give it to Suede and say, oh, this is a Suede song. Sure. It's like, you know, it's, I write a lot with Richard and with Neil and sometimes the rest of the band as well. So it's automatically got a musical identity, mm-hmm. which is, you know, to do with the personalities of the members of the band, which mm-hmm. aren't interchangeable with other people. Absolutely. And so I sort of respond to that music in a lyrical way. But yeah, I think there's a sort of, there's a sort of tension that I'm aware of that's in lots of sort of like suede lyrics that mm-hmm. I'm, I feel when I'm making solo records, I feel freer to, to evolve away from sort of thing. Is that tension a good thing? Yeah, I think it is. I think it. I think it. I think it makes the records interesting. You know, mm-hmm. make, you know, there's a there's a sort of sticky claustrophobia to them, which, mm-hmm. which possibly when I'm when I'm writing for solo records, I kind of do quite the opposite and sort of think, well, okay, what would Brett Anderson do? Well, let's do something different. Mm-hmm. There's a rule ferocity about the album, which I, I really like. I mean, you know, it, 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 there's something nice about a, a band coming back, much older. You know, that I followed. In the early 90s, and they've still got there's still this real fierceness about the way suede sounds, yeah. which I really I think that's great. It's not diminished. It doesn't mm. feel like a sort of well, it doesn't feel like a band chasing past glory. It doesn't. Nor does it feel like a sort of comfortable middle aged record no, either. You know, which I think this, this, that, that's a great thing. Yeah, no, there's a lot of kind of like kind of brutal energy to mm. it. I think you know, and that's how we wanted it. We wanted it to sound really sort of wiry yeah. and kind of you know. I think a lot of it is you know we've we've been playing live for for a couple of years now. And the live shows have been really fantastic, and mm-hmm. I, th- I think that we're we're a better live band now than we kind of ever were in the '90s. Actually, mm-hmm. that's sort of genuinely how I feel. I think it's just experience. You just know how to do it, and you kind mm. of you, you care about it in a different way. The 23 hours of, of not being on stage on tour now are, are, are utterly boring, but that one hour is everything. It's, true. it's kind of aimed put, at that one hour. Yeah, you put it? everything into it. Whereas before it was all kind of spread out, our energy, you know, we party the night before mm. and we kind of fall under stage and it was all yeah. part of the crazy kind of like parade of madness that was being in a band in those days. And now it's like we're very focused on what we do. And I think genuinely the, the band are much better alive than we were and we wanted, to, we wanted to kind of like capture some of that 
on this record, which mm-hmm. is which frustratingly, I think in the past we failed to do. Mm-hmm. Even with the early records, in a way, you listen to something like "So Young" or something like that, and it feels you know the record, the, the recorded version feels very sort of soft and mm. a, a bit toothless, and the live version is this big bouncing animal of a no, song I, 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 and it, it kind of does that. frustrate me a little bit and no I, I totally agree because i saw you in 90 just around the time metal mickey came out of the junction in cambridge and mm. it was just the most berserk live gig i've ever yeah. been at in my life I mean, the audience were totally out of control yeah. i never you know maybe if you saw the smiths in 1983 or something it would have been a bit like that but yeah. too young for that you're right they, they never you never quite got that on the you know what I mean no. maybe it's impossible to get that on a record but there was definitely a sense with I know what you mean yeah it's, I, th- it's, I don't know whether you elusive. can capture it can you because it's not just about the sound of it it is about mm. it is about the kind of energy between the crowd and the and the performer you yeah. know it's it's not just it sounds wild it, mm-hmm. I mean it is wild yeah and so, is, I mean, is this it? I mean, is this a going concern, Suede, or is this Suede have made an album, you know, a final album that, as you say, sort of supplants a new morning? As, as I think we're trying really, really hard to not look into the future at all. Personally, part of what did for the band the first time round was it became ordinary, and it's it's the most ridiculous thing to become ordinary. You know what I mean? <laughs> it really is. But you know, if if it's all you've ever done. It becomes day to day, and one of the things about coming back is you kind of realise the preciousness of it and the fragility of it. And we're trying really hard not to say, "Here's a five-year plan." Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because because that's the, that way lies kind of comfort, mm-hmm. and comfort's kind of the enemy of, of all that's good about us. I think. That's Brett Anderson and Matt Osman from Suede talking to me. That's it for this week. Uh, big thank you to Brian for coming. Thanks, Brian. That's thank a pleasure. No, thanks Abs- for having me in. No, it's an absolute, absolute pleasure. Uh, Kieran, thank you, as ever. Yep. You and I'll be back uh, next week. Um, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash Music Weekly for more information on the show and, of course, to have your say. We'll see you next week. Bye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.